0: Amen. Good morning again, and uh, welcome to GBC. If I don't know you, my name is Daniel Ernest. I'm the executive pastor here, and uh, it's a pleasure to get to open up God's Word and teach you from it today. Uh, This morning, we're going to be continuing on in our study of the book of Joshua. Specifically, we'll be looking at chapter 5, so if you would, please go ahead. Uh, turn there, Joshua chapter 5, we're going to be looking at the first 12 verses of chapter 5, and as you turn there, I I want you to remember uh, Israel is about to begin their military conquest of the promised land. Okay, just before our text, just before Joshua 5, Joshua, the, the new leader of Israel, has led the people across the Jordan River. And, and this crossing was miraculous. God split the rushing waters of the Jordan, and the people passed through on dry land. And if you're familiar with the story, that is exactly what God does to the Red Sea when the people were coming out of Egypt some 40 years earlier. And the repetition of this miracle, the, the same thing happening again what God is doing here is he's reaffirming, he's assuring Israel that he is with them. So, so, so now as we enter into chapter five, the people are camped on the other side of the Jordan. They're, they're just outside the city limits of Jericho. I want to read what happens next and, and what I'm going to do is I'm going I'm to read this whole passage, okay? So Joshua five, all 12 verses, one through 12, stick with me. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeot-Heralot. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that He would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey." So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. But they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Okay, so maybe not what you were expecting, right? Verse 1 tells us that Israel's enemies had heard what God did with the Jordan. They know that Israel is coming for them. And at the end of verse 1, we're told Israel's enemies, their hearts melted. They have no more spirit left within them. And if you have ever competed in anything, okay, it doesn't have to be athletics, it could be cards, it could be whatever, but if you've competed in anything at all, you know that when you've broken your opponent's spirit, when they've lost the will to keep fighting, you don't mess around. You finish them, you bury them, you, you step on their throats. But that isn't what happens here. Instead, the people do two things. Okay, first, God tells Joshua to circumcise the men. And this is because, apparently, and this is from verses 5 to 7, we kind of heard it over and over and over again, but, but the boys that were born in the 40 years of wandering, they weren't circumcised. And so, before Israel begins the conquest, before God makes good on his covenant, his promise to Abraham that he had made to him in Genesis to, to give him the land, before God does what he said he was going to do, God tells, he commands the men to be circumcised. And then, the second thing they do, it comes in verse 10. Look back at it. We see that the people kept the Passover. They kept the Passover. Basically, that means they had a special meal, like, like a more significant Thanksgiving dinner. This is a meal where the people would remember God's delivering them from slavery in Egypt. And what you need to know is that together, these two acts, they served as the principal signs of God's covenant with his people in the Old Testament. And so the people doing them, they're they're participating in these two acts. It was symbolic right before they took the land. It symbolized a renewing of the covenant, a reaffirmation that they were God's people and that God was their God. Now, listen really carefully here. This is the key to understanding the rest of this sermon. Okay, so dial in. Given the basic continuity of the Old and the New Covenants, and that's just a fancy way, by the way, of saying, given the the similarity in the way that God relates to his people in the Old and the New Testaments, then and now, given the the basic similarity in the way that God relates to us, the rest of our time, what I want to do is I want to show you how even though at first this, this text might seem sort of strange and and distant even, I want to show you how it's extremely relevant to us. How? The answer is this. Just as God had two main ordinances, two main signs, markers of his covenant in the Old Testament, God provides us, you and me, the church, people of the new covenant, with two principal ordinances two signs that externally mark his people that enable us to remember and memorialize what he's done for us those acts we call them ordinances are can you guess it baptism and communion baptism and communion baptism is the ordinance of entry into the people of God. It's it's sort of a, a new version of circumcision, and it exists as an external sign, as a marker of someone, an individual, saying after their conversion, after regeneration, after they've put their faith in Jesus, it marks them saying, I belong to God. Baptism is is planting your flag in the ground. It's saying, I'm a part of God's family. I'm one of God's sons. I'm one of God's daughters. I'm on God's team. That's what baptism is doing. And communion, communion is a meal, much like Passover, that we participate in together, the whole church. And we do that to remember to physically put ourselves in a position where we're forced to remember that Jesus gave his body, that's the bread, and that he shed his blood, that's the cup. Okay, so understanding that, understanding the, the, the similarity, the continuity of, of circumcision and baptism on one end and Passover and communion on the other, What I want to do is I want to look back at our passage at Joshua 5, and I want us to see what we can learn about baptism and communion from it. And specifically, I want to see what these things, these ordinances of the new covenant, I want to see what they're not good for, and then I want to turn and look to consider what they are good for. Okay? So, first... What are the ordinances? What are baptism and communion not good for? What are they unable to do? To start, I want to call your attention back to verses 2 through 7. Okay, we're not going to read them again, but I want you to remember in verse 2, look at it, God called Joshua to circumcise the men. And remember, this had to happen because, and we're told this at the end of verse 7 real succinctly, it says, they were uncircumcised, because they had not been circumcised on the way. So, just to make sure you're following, the the generation of people who came out of Egypt 40 years before, those folks, they were all circumcised. But their kids, their sons, their sons that were born in the wilderness on the way during these 40 years, we're told in verse 6, the first generation didn't obey God, they didn't give their sons the mark of the covenant. They did not circumcise their boys. And because of this, verse 6 tells us that God allowed that generation, the first generation, to perish. God allowed them to die before they saw the promised land. And I want you to remember who we're talking about here. And not only was this first generation circumcised, they were also the first people to experience the Passover. Like, they were the ones that did it. The thing that they did over and over and over again year after year, they were the first ones to do it. They, they, they're the ones that chose the lamb. They, they, they're the ones that killed the lamb. They, they're the ones that spread the blood over their doorpost. They ate the meal. They experienced the, the dread and the relief as they waited for the angel of death to, to pass over their house. That, these people, and not only that, they're the ones who passed through the Red Sea. They followed a pillar of smoke by day and a fire by night. They saw the glory of God fill the tabernacle. They saw Moses' shining face when he came down the mountain. They ate manna from heaven. They drank water that came spewing out of a rock. Like in terms of seeing God, it's hard to think of, Any group of people in the Bible or or ever in the whole world who had seen a higher volume of the miraculous, maybe outside of the 12 disciples, than these people. Like, like they've seen God do some incredible things. And yet, verse 4 tells us that every last one of them, every last one of them died in the wilderness. Verse 6 adds that God refused to allow any of them to enter into the promised land. This generation that had experienced so much, this generation that had seen so much, God swore that they would never make it to the land. And I hope you see, the idea here is that the observance of circumcision, the partaking in the meal of Passover, in the end... These two acts didn't save that first generation. These two acts weren't able to deliver them to the promised land. They died on the way. And just like that, baptism and communion, they're just ultimately not good for salvation. They can't save you. So, Have you been baptized? Good. If you're a Christian, you should be. Do you come to to church on Sunday? Do you take communion when we have it? Great. Again, you should. You you shouldn't miss it. Even beyond that, are you a, a partner here at GBC? Are you in a small group? Do you volunteer in the nursery? Do you read your Bible? Do you memorize scripture? Do you give money to the church? Do you go on mission trips? Very good. You should do all of those things. But if when your time to cross the Jordan comes, and and it will come for everyone here, and and the greater Joshua, Jesus, stands before you to judge, when that day comes, if you say to him, Jesus, let let me in the promised land. I I was baptized. I I, I took communion. I, I received the elements every month. Or if you say to him, I walked an aisle at church or I prayed a prayer at camp. Or if you say to him, I did lots and lots and lots and lots of things in your name. I led a growth group. I led a community group. I was a volunteer in the nursery. I did so many things for you, God. If you say those things, if you put your hope there, if you rely on those things, just like the first generation of Israelites you will perish in the wilderness. You, you will never cross the Jordan. You'll never see the promised land. God himself will refuse to let you in. Because in the end, there's only one Savior. There's only one true object of faith, and that's Jesus. Jesus. And it's only when we put our hope in his life, death, and resurrection in the gospel, it's only then that we, you and me, can enter into the promised land to be with God forever. So, what are the ordinances? Communion, baptism, what are they not able to do? Like I've said, they, they, they can't save you. They can't deliver you through the Jordan. They can't lead you to the promised land. But switching gears... What are the ordinances good for? Why do they exist? The answer is that they exist as a sign. They exist as a sign. that They point beyond themselves to something more significant, something more profound. Now, as we get into that, I want to make sure that we're clear on exactly what they serve as a sign of. Because... Thinking back to our text, it'd be really easy to see the Old Testament ordinances, circumcision and Passover, it'd be easy to look at those things and simply see them as badges or signs of renewed obedience and faithfulness to God. Okay, in other words, it would be easy to see the, these things as signs of our faithfulness, our obedience to God, especially when we consider our text and the faithlessness of that last generation. But look back at verse 7. I'm going to read just the beginning there. Verse 7 says, So it was their children whom he, that's God, raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. So, was circumcision a sign of Israel's renewed faithfulness? Sure. Uh, Of course it was. It showed that they would be obedient where their parents weren't, But that's not the emphasis of the text. The the emphasis isn't on their faithfulness. Instead, the focus is on the faithfulness of God. Verse 7 goes out of its way to ensure that we know that God was the one that raised up that generation. Verse 7 ensures that we know that God was the one who kept his promise, even, by the way, despite the former generation's disobedience. God is faithful, not the Israelites. And just like then, now, baptism and communion, they serve as signs not of our work, not of our commitment, not of our obedience, our faithfulness to God. Instead, they point to the faithfulness of God despite our continued rebellion, despite ongoing sin in our lives. They point baptism and communion to his work, not ours. And on top of that, I I said this earlier, each of the ordinances is done to put us in a a physical place where we're forced to remember, and, and this is the kindness of God. He knows his people. He knows you and me. He knows that we're forgetful, some of us more than others. And so what he does is he gives us these physical reminders of what he's done for us, and we see that in Joshua 5. Okay, in Joshua 5, God commands the men in verse 2, but it's also a command he makes before and after throughout the Old Testament. He tells the men to be circumcised. And he commands this physical act so that they would remember the covenant, so that they would remember what God had told Abraham all those years ago. And I'm not meaning to be crass here at all, but there's not a man in the camp that would forget his circumcision. It was a a cutting taken away from the most sensitive, the most private part of the body. And we saw in verse 8, it took several days to heal. Like they're not forgetting this. But even more than the immediate discomfort, it was a mark that lasted, it endured. That part of the body, it didn't grow back. And and so it was a, a permanent reminder, a physical marker that lasted that would remind them of the covenant. And with regard to Passover, the meal was celebrated. It was observed annually. On the first month, in verse 10, we're told, on the 14th day, every single time, every single year, when that, game, that day came, year after year after year after year, without fail, the people were commanded to keep the Passover. And so it served as a consistent, a physical reminder of what god did in egypt it was this sensory experience that made them remember made them reflect on how he had miraculously delivered them from slavery in egypt obviously the same is true for baptism and communion again they're they're physical acts They they force us into a place where we have the opportunity to remember, to reflect on God's faithfulness in our lives. They, They put us in a place where we remember God's work on our behalf. They put us in a place, by the way, where we act out physically, externally, what has happened spiritually, internally. So, what are the ordinances good for? Why do they exist? The answer is they serve as signs. They point to God's faithfulness, not ours, and they put us, you and me, in a physical position. They force us to literally act something out because we're forgetful people and we need the constant reminder. Now, that said, you you might be thinking, I get all that. I've been in the church for a long time. I know that I need to be reminded. I, I get what baptism and communion are for, but like, Other than that, like what practical difference do these ordinances, these religious rites, these these symbols, what, what practical difference do these things make in my life, right? Like you might be thinking, if these are just symbols, they can't save me, if they're not salvific in any way, what's the big deal? How do these things matter for today? How do these things matter for tomorrow? If you're thinking that, we get our answers, believe it or not, from Joshua 5. First in, in verse 9, look at it again. The beginning of verse 9 says, And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Okay, now, the implication here is that the reproach, which, which by the way, that's not a word we use a lot. Reproach means uh, disgrace or, or shame. The implication here is that even though the people had been out of Egypt for for 40 years, the embarrassment, the disgrace, the stench of slavery had hung around. It had lingered. But now God says, that's over. That's over. Today, the burden is lifted. Your reproach, your shame is gone. Your past is past forever. And listen. So many people, so many of us carry around the burden of shame, of of feeling disgraced and embarrassed, feeling the reproach of things we've done in the past, things we've said, things we've thought maybe a long time ago or maybe just like last night. That's you. I want you to see God has said the same thing to you. He said the same thing to me. He says, i rolled away your reproach. I've rolled away your shame. And he did that by sending Jesus, who, by the way, did not just take our penalty on the cross. He also endured the shame that we deserve because of our sin. so, So what practical difference do these ordinances make? As we celebrate communion, as we witness baptism, both ours and other people, we're reminded our sin is forgiven. The debt has been paid for. It's done. And so there's no room for lingering shame in the life of a Christian. God has said to you in his son Jesus, and he reminds you in the ordinances, he says, Today, your sin, past, present, and future, it's forgiven. Your reproach, the shame that comes along with it, it's removed. God says, Today, you are clean. And second, Verses 11 through 12, after the circumcision, after the Passover meal, did you notice what happened next? Verse 11 says, and the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes, and parched grain. And then verse 12 adds that the manna that God had been giving to his people, it stopped. Why? Because they got something better. The end of verse 12 tells us, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Now, why is that significant? How can we apply this to our taking communion, to our observing baptism? Again, it's, it's a reminder that God keeps his word. God delivers on his promises. No matter what circumstances you might be facing right now, it could be good or it could be bad. We can know no matter what we face, even as we face uncertainty in the future, God will always deliver. God will always be faithful. And sure, it may not be in the way that we'd want. There may be a period of wandering. There might be a a lack of earthly fulfillment. We may not have our our best life, but, but even still, we can know if we put our faith in Jesus, if we look to him, we can know that we will cross the Jordan eventually. Maybe not now, but but later. We can take that to the bank. We're going to enter into the promised land and we will eat not manna, not the bread of of promises made. No, we will eat from the fruit of the land. We will eat the bread of promises kept. That's what God does. So, again, the ordinances, baptism and communion, they may not be good for salvation. They can't save us. But but they do serve as really effective signs, as physical reminders of what God has done for us and Jesus. And that should matter deeply to you. It matters deeply to me because it enables us to move past the shackles of our former slavery to sin. It allows us to, to move past shame, and also, because it enables us to have perspective in any and every circumstance that we face. Like, these are the things that you should be thinking about. These are the things that you should be reflecting on when you take communion here, or when we have a baptism every now and then out there. This is what we should be considering and reflecting and thanking God for. Now, all of that said, I want to conclude by returning to something from the very beginning. Okay, remember verse one? Remember how Israel's enemies had lost their wills? Remember how it was time for for Israel to to step on their throats? Well, not only do they not attack immediately, instead, they stop and they cut themselves. They they hurt themselves in in a very personal and very humiliating way. And then, after they're healed, they delay even further by having a picnic on the plains of Jericho. And these things obviously they make Israel incredibly vulnerable. They, they, they go from having the advantage to being completely susceptible to attack. God has stripped Israel of their ability to, to march to war, to, to even defend themselves. He, he strips them of their confidence, of their strength. And look, you don't have to be like a military genius or someone who reads like World War II books, like this is not good strategy. This is mystifying tragedy. It's, it's maddening even. Until, until you remember that this is how God works. You see, part of the divine agenda is to display strength through weakness. In other words, This is what God does. And so, while this might be a horrible way to start a military conquest from our perspective, this is not the best way to take back the land, maybe, from the way that we think about things. We need to recognize that God is doing this intentionally. He wants his people hobbled and humbled. He wants them vulnerable and defenseless. Why? So that he can show them that he is sufficient. So that he can show them that the foolishness to the world is is wisdom to God, to him. So that he can show us and them that his power really is made perfect and there in our weakness. And when you think about it, this is exactly the meaning of communion and baptism. Like we've talked about, they exist to point to something that on the surface seems absurdly weak. They they, they point to something which seems to be the perfect image of failure and futility. Communion and baptism together, they point to a naked rabbi in a forgotten corner of the Roman Empire. They, 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 They point to a man nailed to a cross left to die amidst the taunts and jeers and mockery of the world. And yet, Despite the seeming defeat as Christians, we know the story doesn't end there. No, the water of baptism, the bread and wine of communion, they enable us to see beyond the apparent weakness. They point us to Jesus' glorious resurrection, to his exaltation, to his ascension, to the right hand of God, to his being given all authority and dominion in heaven and earth. And as they do that, we're reminded of another conquest. Not just of of Israel, of the land, but of the entire world. And not through military might or strategy, but through the gospel of Jesus Christ that redeems men and women from every tongue and tribe, from every corner of the earth. It's a conquest that will end, by the way, with every knee bowed and tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of his Father. And the best part of all of that is this. God has commissioned you. He's he's commissioned me to be a part. He's called us to be numbered among the weak and wounded soldiers that he loves to use. He's given us the privilege and honor of making disciples, of being a part of his work and revealing his kingdom on this earth. The only question is, Will you embrace the weakness that God requires in us to do it? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, I am uh, thankful, Lord, for uh, your word and for this story. Uh, where Lord, we get to reflect on the fact that you work through our weaknesses, Lord, to display your strength. Uh, Lord, I pray for each one of us in our lives, uh, Lord, that uh, we would embrace, uh, Lord, the opportunity you give us to be a part of what you're doing in this world, Lord. I pray that where we struggle to accept weakness, Lord, where we struggle to submit to give you any part of our lives, Lord, I pray that you'd allow us to do that. Uh, Lord, I'm also thankful for uh, the gifts of baptism and communion, Lord, that you've given them to us so that we could remember what you've done for us. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't take them for granted, and I pray, Lord, that we would enjoy them in the way that you have designed them to be enjoyed. pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.